With me to Luke chapter 20, we are going through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Luke chapter 20. And to help you settle down, I'll ask the Lord's blessing. <laughs> it usually works. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, thank you for your goodness, thank you for your grace. And now before us, Lord, we have a text, the word of the living God. We're thankful that the Bible says of itself that it is God-breathed, that it does not have its origin in any man. But holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote, inspired by you, your word that brings us life. So we receive it as such. Have your way in our hearts and lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when Andre Agassi, one of the greatest tenor, tennis players of all time, was nine years old, his father was a Las Vegas hustler. He set up unsuspecting adults to verse his third grader in a friendly little tennis match, of course, for money. Well, one day, Andre's dad ran into football great Jim Brown, at a fancy Las Vegas racket club and managed to ensnare Jim into a $10,000 wager against little Andre. Now Jim Brown's probably thinking, I'm a full-grown man, 6'2", 232 pounds. I googled his stats. (laughs) He's probably thinking, I'm a professional fullback playing for the NFL. I'm going to beat this nine-year-old for the easiest ten grand of my life. Well, they took to the courts. Andre slaughtered him. Just sent him to the dry cleaners. Jim was taken by surprise. He only paid up $500, according to his um, biography that I read, Andre's, that is. But... I think that they had changed after he saw him playing a little bit in practice. He changed it from 10,000 to 500. That at least was smart, but he still lost 500 bucks. He learned a lesson. Appearances can be deceiving. Jim Brown had no idea who or what he was up against. The future number one ranked player disguised as a nine-year-old. Well... In here in Luke 20, some well-to-do, well-trained, smug religious leaders are in the same boat that Jim Brown climbed into as they are engaging the Son of God in a little theological debate. You know, it's time for the city boys there at the temple square where they are, in the temple courts, that is. It's time for these city boys, to teach that country bumpkin, that wannabe rabbi from Galilee, a thing or two. And so they're in- engaging him, little knowing he is the man who has come down from heaven, as he has proclaimed, and evidencing that truth and proclamation by deeds that nobody could do unless you indeed did come down from heaven. And so he's going to learn a thing or two, that is, these Sadducees who are in the temple courts. It is Tuesday of Passion Week. 
And Jesus is teaching and healing, and as we've been seeing, the religious leaders are desperate to discredit the Lord. They are threatened by him. They want to put an end to him. So different parties of the religious leaders with their select representatives are taking turns challenging Jesus there publicly to these little verbal duels to the death. Well, this morning, the lamest attempt yet. Now, you've heard your teacher say, you know, there's no such thing really as a what? Dumb question. Yeah, there is. There is, because you're going to read a seven-part dumb question uh, in just a minute. (laughs) Well, it turns out not to really be a question. It's really an attempt to ridicule the resurrection and life after death and put Jesus on the spot. But, of course, you know how the story always ends when you put Jesus on the spot. Mm, The tables get turned. And so here we go. The Sadducees don't believe in life after death. I don't know how high priests and priests in the temple court with open scrolls of the living word can say there's no life after death, but they did. Jesus is not going to take it sitting down. He's going to fire back, and his answer is going to silence them to the applause of the Pharisees. And so this is going to be pretty good here. We're picking up in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, in other words, no heaven, no hell, when you die, you die, kaput, that's it, who say there's no resurrection, came up to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry, the brother must marry that widow and raise up offspring for his brother in his brother's name. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at your (coughs) resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, you know, Matthew and Mark are parallel passages of this incident. Uh, Matthew 22 and and Mark 12, if you're interested. And they give the fuller account. And I stop here because in their account, Jesus rebukes them and says, Oh, man, are you guys ever lost? Because you don't know the Bible and you underestimate the power of God. Now we pick up. Jesus replies, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come... And in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry or be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They do not become angels. They are similar to angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, those are Pharisees. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> yeah, we like that line, don't we? The whole world will be silenced one day when Christ appears 
and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, the scriptures say, and then every mouth will be silenced. Just like we have a little picture of that going on here. Well, though it may not seem like a big deal, these men are actually going for the jugular without a resurrection, which they are contending. There is no Christianity. There's no need for a Messiah. What do you need a Savior for? Christianity will implode upon itself if you do not have life after death, a resurrection. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. And your faith is futile. And so, yeah, this is no just silly question. It is a silly little thing that they're talking about. But the crux, the intent, is as evil as Lucifer himself. And so we're going to take a look at that. Jesus is going to not take it laying down, as I said. He's going to defend the doctrine so well that it, it, in the Greek it says they were muzzled. All right? And so he's going to put these guys in their place, and he's going to give lo- logical, sound, biblical evidence why God's word promises us eternal life. So really two parts to this message. The resurrection ridiculed and the resurrection defended. For you note-takers. All right, so point one. Resurrection ridiculed. Well, who is doing this ridiculing? Well, your text says the Sadducees, so let's get introduced to them. Here's a paraphrase introducing the text. So next up to bat are the Sadducees, who are well known for denying life after death. They say, when you die, you're dead. It's over. End of story. It's their turn to question Jesus, all right? So who are these knuckleheads, all right? Well, first of all, they're religious leaders. Israel's government is made up of a high court called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is from a Greek word that means council or assembly. And what these guys did was they took 70 men from Numbers 11, referencing Numbers 11, where Moses had 70 elders. And so the number was chosen from Numbers 11. And so they had 70 elders, and they were divided into different parties and affiliations. And the two most famous ones are the Pharisees, who were conservative scholarly types, the lawyers, and the Sadducees, who were liberal in their theology. They were the priests. And the scribes. So Annas and Caiaphas, they're Sadducees. Any priests that you read about, the chief priests, they're all Sadducees. And uh, Kent, not only are they religious leaders, they're religious leaders who are corrupt. They are the wealthy ones. They are the liberals. They are the ones that don't read their Bibles. Kent Hughes defines them this way. Mean-spirited, isolative, aristocratic, philosophical materialists. In other words, they're very bad people. (laughs) Now, simply put, they're small-hearted, little wealthy priests who ran around, who didn't know their Bible. They had complete control, all the power, and bad theology. You know, remember uh, when Jesus cleanses the temple the money changers and all the extortion that was going on there, it was making 
the Sadducees filthy rich. And so they, they kind of liked Rome. They had a nice little niche carved out for themselves, and Jesus was going to upset all of that free money and their wealth and their power, and so they hated him. Now, what set them apart, as your text says, is that they didn't believe there was a resurrection or life after death, no heaven, no hell. You die like a plant dies. No difference between you and a tree. You're dead, you're dead. That's what these men believed. And, you know, I've said this many times, that's how you remember Sadducee, right? Because they don't believe in life after death, so they're sad, you see, right? And (laughs) you laughed a lot better than I thought that was going to go. Good, good. And the lawyers are fair, you see. Well, they're supposed to be anyway. So that's one way of remembering it. Well, not surprising. Moving on. (laughs) Not surprising, is it, that the wealthy materialist, that somebody who just lives for stuff and money and luxury, is it surprising to you that they're the ones who say there's nothing after death? Of course they're the ones who think that because they got everything they need now. Who needs heaven when I'm living in the lap of luxury? Or maybe the connection goes the other way. Maybe it's because they don't believe in the afterlife that they have to enjoy this life with everything they have. Men who believe that there's no afterlife and no accountability are the most conniving and dangerous of all men on earth. Now, I was watching a little clip on the news. A security camera caught three men mugging a woman at a bus stop. They ripped her purse from her until she's clinging to it. It's stuck on her arm. So the weight of pulling it drags her to the ground. These are men who David warns us about, who sees their reward simply in this life. They can't see past this life. Because nobody who believes in a life to come where there's heaven and hell and there's a God on a throne who's going to evaluate and open some books up and say, about that mugging, Perhaps we can just okay, just play the tape right now. We just want to see how that went down. Nobody would act like that if they really believed that there's more to this life than decomposing in the soil like a tree. Human soul does not decompose. Its spirit, its breath, it lives forever, and it will return to the God who gave it in the first place for an accounting of the life that was loaned out. Everybody will answer for every deed done in the body, good or bad. I just quoted the scriptures. And so these are the bad guys. Sad to say they're in church, the temple, with scrolls of the Bible everywhere. God is in the midst and they're perishing. Go figure that one. That's tough for me. Whatever the case, they had no excuse for this false idea that there's no resurrection. It's seen in nature, isn't it? Every spring, glorious, vibrant life bursting forth from barren, dead twigs. The field's hard as rock, dead, lifeless. Boom, up comes these beautiful plants, new life on these dead trees. God trying to say, hey, it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like you going to sleep at night in total darkness. You lay there, you look dead, you go unconscious. 
you pull the little bankies up right under your chin. It just looks like a little, you know, he's gone. And in most cases, you really are, almost. And then suddenly, the sun comes up, the birds are singing, and you sit up. You think that is a metaphor. God knit that into creation, not only in the cycle of the earth, but in the cycles of our own bodies, that he can use metaphors for which we can understand the resurrection. And he does. He says, he says it's like planting a bulb in the ground, man. It goes in one way and it comes up something totally different, something totally beautiful. And so these guys are without excuse. Not only that, it's plastered all over their Old Testament scriptures. Please, Daniel chapter 12. And many bodies that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame. Daniel 12, 1. Ezekiel, chapter 37. The Lord God, behold, my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. Ezekiel, the psalmist, King David. Therefore, my heart is glad and I rejoice because my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not leave me in the grave. Job. And after my body has been destroyed yet in this very body, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not someone else. How my heart yearns within me. You don't even have to be a Christian as Ben Franklin on his uh, gravestone. He had put placed after his demise the body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering lies here. Food for worms, but the content shall not be entirely lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. He's not even a born-again Christian, but he gets it. Because God, Ecclesiastes says, has placed eternity in the heart of men. We know. We are souls. We are different from trees and plants and dogs and things. We are a human soul. We have consciousness. We know he exists because we exist. That's why there's no such thing as an atheist. Romans chapter 1 says God's spirit has put in man a knowing, a conscience, that you couldn't have just appeared out of a mud puddle. You had to have been brought here by a spirit being because you are spirit being. Spirit begets spirit. And so there's no excuse. Now, when you say that to a Sadducee, here's what they say. But Moses never said anything about resurrection. Their cop-out was this. We only buy the first five books. Anything Moses says, we believe. Now, Jesus is going to make his case from Moses, of course. Uh, they only believe in the first books of the Bible. You, you know, Moses is their hero, their deliverer. So they said, look, if Moses, show me it in Moses. Show me in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Show it to me there, Jesus, and then I'll believe it. Well, he does. And, you know, you get similar arguments today, don't you? Jesus never said anything about 
whatever. Just recently, Jesus never, to me, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So I said, you know, you're right. He didn't mention kidnapping, wife beating, smoking pot, or watching porn. So I guess those things are okay too. He wasn't happy. (laughs) I can build a case for you how those four things are prohibited because of things Jesus said, and they're named outside of Jesus' words as well. And so you're dealing with this kind of argument. Now, the question, or the riddle, may I paraphrase? Delightful teacher, we've always wondered about this one really difficult problem. Now, Moses, Moses commands that if a man dies and leaves his wife childless, his brother, if able, should take care of her by marrying her and producing an heir in the brother's name. Now, get a load of this, Jesus. We had these seven brothers. The first one gets married and dies before they have kids. So brother number two marries her. Boom! It happens again. No kids, just a funeral. Brother three, four, five, and six follow suit. Same story, Jesus. No children, just funeral, funeral after funeral. Then the widow, she died too. Now then, in your so-called heaven, Who's the real husband going to be since they all were her husband at one time? (laughs) Sorry, I added that just for visual. Now, my first reaction is, what's going on with this woman? All right. If somebody... (laughs) I, I, I would just be checking the breakfast burritos. I would just want to know... Okay, can we have a sample here? You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine brothers three, four, five, and six dragging their heels all the way, scared chicken at the altar? What a coincidence. They all go on a honeymoon, and everyone comes back in a body bag. Sounds more like a plot from CSI. And by the way, do not watch that show. I only know about it. I heard something hilarious from somebody who knew I was going to preach on this text. He said, after my wife read this, she said, you know, if we still had that custom today and something were to happen to you and I'd have to marry your brother's, Do you know how hard I would be praying for you (laughs) and your (laughs) well-being? You would have 24-7 intercessory prayer. (laughs) Dear God, (laughs) protect my husband every step he makes. Uh, All right, moving along by the expression on some of your faces, it is time to move on. Now, FYI. They don't care which brother gets to marry her in heaven. They want to say, you look really stupid. Your afterlife, heaven is a beautiful place filled with glory and grace, not 
It's one big mess up there. Isn't it, Jesus? That's what they're thinking. There can't be a heaven because we can't picture how life works there. So, since we can't figure out how everything's going to go there, it can't possibly be real. Because let's make up some story. Look at that. That wouldn't work there, would it? So, therefore, there is no. Well, Deuteronomy 25 is what they're quoting from Moses, where the law, leveret marriage it's called, where the law in ancient day, when they had no help from anybody and a woman died without an heir, she was left alone. She would be destroyed. <laughs> so the law provided for her. If there's a brother who's able, the brother take care of her. But they took it to an extreme here. And, you know, you see, remember the whole um, scandal with Judah and Tamar? It was the neglect of this command that caused that scandal. And it forms the background for Ruth and Boaz to get together. You see? So leveret marriage was one thing, but uh, they were trying to disprove the resurrection through it. That's not going to work. So now as on to defending the resurrection, because we've looked at the ridiculers and gone over their ridiculous so-called question. The resurrection to be defended now by Jesus. As I mentioned, Luke cuts to the chase. He doesn't want to tell you that Jesus fires an arrow of rebuke to these guys, saying two things to them that I'm going to discuss here. Uh, here's the paraphrase. First of all, this is what Mark and um, Matthew say. You're really lost. You've lost your way because you don't know your Bibles and you underestimate the power of God. Those are the two things that uh, Luke skirts around there. Now, the word you err. You err, E-R-R, as the King James has it. You're making a mistake. Planeo in the Greek. It means to deceive yourself or wander off the path, the right way, not taking the right way. He says, because you don't know the scriptures. And they say, do too. Of course, we just quoted Deuteronomy 25 to you. We know the scriptures. We just quoted it. He says, no, you don't know the scriptures. You can quote scriptures. There's a difference between knowing the location and the uh, word and the verbiage of a scripture and knowing biblically. You cannot know a scripture biblically unless you're living it, unless you've bowed the knee. You see, lots of folks have little initials after their name, and you, you see them at Christmas and Easter time on television searching for the historical Jesus, professor from some liberal seminary with some initials after their name who don't know the scriptures because you can't know the scriptures and know God if you're not one of his followers. I mean, what is it? Isn't it useless to know about God? And not love God? Isn't it useless to tell us all about this so-called king and not be his subject? That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, look, man, the devil quoted Psalm 91 verse 11 to Jesus when he took him up to the temple and said, Hey, Mr. Son of God, throw yourself off because Psalm 91 verse 11 says, he will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. So, take a little step. He knows scripture. 
He says, you guys are messed up because you don't know the scriptures. You don't read your Bibles with faith and a bound heart. It's one thing to just know where everything is. Oh, I know where that is. And be an expert, as they were. But Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. Furthermore, he says, you underestimate God's power. And here, here's the crux of it. It's not wondering logically how he will do something. It's about believing that God has the power to do what he's will, what he wills to do. You can't try to f- figure whether God exists by whether or not how we can perceive him doing something. In other words, you know, how do we meet the Lord in the air? He said, when that last soul is saved in the church age, a trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. Their bodies will rise and they will be united with their glorified bodies. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. How is that going to work? Well, then, I guess since we can't figure out how it's going to work, then I guess it isn't true. No. Does he have the power as God to do that? He does. Well, how in the world is he going to take a body that was lost at sea 2,000 years ago and bring that body back to unite with its spirit and soul on the last day? Is he able to do that? He is able to do that. Do I logically understand how he's going to do that? The point is, Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures and you underestimate God's power. He who spoke and the universe leaps into existence is able to do these little things and they're little things to God. I mean, how would it rain hard and long enough for all the world to perish except eight souls on a boat preserving all the species of the earth. How would that work? It worked. Because God has the power. You've got to know the scriptures. You've got to know the Lord. You've got to bow the knee and receive those scriptures in faith. And then do not underestimate the power of God. How does a nation scattered to the wind ever wind up back as a recognized nation, as the Jewish people. 2,000 years of you will not be a nation. You have no borders. We do not recognize you and we will not let you. How do they become a nation? Well, May 14th, 1948, they became a nation recognized by the world. How? How did that happen? It's not ours to logically figure out things, how a city is going to descend from the sky, and that will form what we live in, the millennial kingdom. How is that going to happen? The question is not, how is this going to happen? The question is, does God have the ability to do as he wills? And the answer is yes. Can we move on now? Sorry. Well, moving on. Now to your dilemma. Jesus says, In this world at this time, in this life, men and women marry. But those who find God's favor and make it to heaven, they won't be married. Marriage will be outdated. It will have served its purpose. For one thing, people can't die. 
So there's no need for procreation. Men and women will be like the angels in this regard. In other words, Michael the archangel does not have Mrs. Michael the archangel. There's no Mrs. Gabriel. He says you're going to be like they are, relating to God and to everyone around and all God's creation as the individual you are unto God. You will not relate as Mr. and Mrs., number one. And so there are some things to think about. Now, you know, before you love bugs get all depressed, (laughs) there are some things to think about. I'll address that. But number one, notice with me a few things that we can uh, infer from these remarks. Heaven's a privilege, not a given. Did you catch this? I hope you did. Because Jesus says in your text, Now, first of all, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the life to come, what is Jesus saying? He's saying heaven's a privilege, not a given. He looks at them, he pauses, and he says, Look at you guys. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Everybody dies and goes to heaven. He says, oh, oh, first of all, could I point something out to you? Not everybody who dies just goes to heaven. Look, we have one brother, two brothers, three brothers. They all died. And of course, when you die, you all go to heaven. And there they all are, all seven of them and the wife. Jesus says, oh, excuse me. Number one, those who are considered worthy will wind up in heaven. There'll be some husbands there without their wives and some wives up without their husbands. Doesn't work just because you're born a Jew. I mean, you die, you go to heaven. You're born in a Christian nation, you die. You're basically a good person. No. Now, before you get freaked out about what it means to be considered worthy of getting to heaven, the verb there is kataxiao in the Greek, and it means to be considered worthy. It is a passive reception rather than something you earn. In other words, heaven is granted by God, not assumed. So first of all, he says, your logic is flawed because, you know, you're really not going to have that problem. Well, what if one gets there and the other one doesn't? So there's no marriage just because of that. All right? Now, considering us worthy... Is this not crazy that God does that? What an upside-down kingdom. Those who think they're worthy. Oh, I'm basically a good person. Look at these long flowing robes and the scrolls. I'm in the temple. I'm a high priest. I'm related to the right person. Unworthy. Who's worthy? Mary Magdalene, a prostitute with seven unclean spirits. She's worthy. Paul the Apostle, who was Saul, a killer of Christians. He's worthy. A demonized man living in the tombs, gashing himself with rocks, crying out like a lunatic, naked and shameful. He's worthy. A little greedy, money-hungry tax collector at a tax booth called Matthew. Only interested in people's money, what he could get from you. He's worthy. What did all these people have in common? They believed. They trusted. They felt their unworthiness and cried out to a savior 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You become worthy. Abraham believed God and he considered him righteous. Noah found favor. That's passive. He was given it. There is not one righteous person. No, not one. So who's worthy? Anybody who wants to be. Anyone who knows they're unworthy. Anyone. God's upside down kingdom. And so he says tongue in cheek, well, those who are considered worthy. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, notice with me, heaven's coming. We get there and a new age has dawned. It's not, secondly now, the thing we get from this marriage statement, not a heavenly life is not a continuation of life as we know it. Now, in other words, somebody just recently said to me, you know what? I don't even want to live forever. I wouldn't want eternal life. And I say, you know what? No kidding. Neither would I. It's not a continuation of life as you know it here in a fallen, cursed world. He says the old things will have passed away. There's a new order that God will be among them. He will wipe away every tear. There's no more reason for crying. No more death, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more war. He says eternal life, resurrection, is going to be different there. Please stop imagining it. Yes, there are some similarities. You will always be you. You will always recognize we retain our own personal identities. Now, in most ways, everything's different and upside down. The streets are paved with gold, for crying out loud. Nothing unclean ever enters that place. The curse is is lifted. It's a totally different thing. So for me, it makes total sense that marriage and other things like that our lifestyles here are outmoded. They don't make sense anymore. You see? Now, I love this quote. So take heart, you who are in love with your wife or husband as I am, with my wife. The Lord is not saying that husbands and wives who are saved in this life Don't continue to love and relate to one another in heaven, in perfect love, joy, and knowledge. He is, however, saying that in heaven we relate to God and to each other as the individuals we are, as children of God, not as husband and wife, the way angels currently do. You see, there will be no need to populate the planet. There's no need to replace dying people, and there's no need to model the love between Christ and his church. Everything will be full. Your heart will be full. You will know them and love them perfectly. And no tears in heaven. The first time I will be able to know my wife completely and be in relationship with her with no tears. This is amazing. I am looking forward to this. No little stops at Safeway for a little card and a little flowers with me saying I'm so sorry. None of that. None of that. Done. Now, the implications that marriage 
is temporary. I will leave that to the Holy Spirit in your own heart. Marriage, the Bible says, is temporary. It is a thing that will be outdated. Be careful your priorities. It's a temporary thing. Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 7. Read that chapter with this in mind, and it'll make a little bit more sense what he's trying to get at. Without diminishing the huge importance of loving our spouses and caring for them. You know, it's not just marriage that's going to be outdated. Politicians, judges, lawyers, police, out of a job, he will be reigning on his throne. Coroners, morticians, funeral directors, estate planners, I'm sorry, you're out too. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, the great physician's in, and guess what? He will give us a body like his glorious body. Engineers and architects, we don't need you anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) I hate to be the one to tell you. Um, Gas, electric, water departments, done. My job, over. It says, in that day, no man will say, know the Lord, for all men will know me, from the greatest to the least. So I join you. So please stop with heaven and the hereafter. It's just like here. In many ways, it's nothing like here, as nothing like a tulip bulb goes in the ground and up comes a tulip. You see any similarity between that dead bulb and the glory of a tulip? That's the glory the Bible is trying to talk to you about. Yes, Jesus had a body. Yes, he ate fish afterwards. But he also walked through the door without opening it. (laughs) So we have some changes to look forward to. And if anybody's happy about getting to being able to eat and not gain weight, you can say amen. (laughs) Last point. You know what's sad about that? Can we hop down a bunny trail right here? You know about, I've wrestled with the same 20 pounds for about 50 years. (laughs) I can watch you eating those bagels. I'm gaining weight. (laughs) I don't need to consume the carb. I just need to see it being consumed. So that's why I avoid you when you've got carbs in your hands. First of all, I don't want to gain weight watching you. Uh, Second of all, I don't want to take it from your hand right there. (laughs) I seriously don't. (laughs) All right, one more little bunny trail, because you look happy today. I don't know what it is. I was watching the Food Network late at night. That's a mistake. Because the stomach starts to churn and my mouth is watering. And then my wife always asks me, where are you going? And I'm like, nowhere. (laughs) I'm going downstairs to check on the cat. Oh, we don't have one. Um, All right. 
Moving on. I look forward to the joys of heaven, and sometimes I get carried away. All right, now to your real issue, Jesus says, and then we'll take communion. About God raising the dead, it's Moses who teaches that there's a resurrection. Remember the burning bush incident, guys? The Lord says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How can he be the God of people who don't exist? Obviously, they're alive if the Lord speaks of them in present tense. Now, the Pharisees let out a woot-woot, and no one dares ask him another question. So, first of all, notice with me, the reality of resurrection is evidenced by God's statement about himself. From Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, I am these three guys' God. That I was, I am, today, now. This makes no sense if they're presently not alive. If I say to you, I was your dad's friend, your dad is either dead or we've had a change in our relationship. But if I say to you, I am your dad's friend, two things are conveyed. The existence of your father and the ongoing relationship we have. If Abraham is nothing but dust, God cannot be his God. So Jesus just looks at him and he says, I am their God. I'm making a statement not only about me, but about them. I'm eternal. I've made eternal promises to them. They are alive and receiving and yet to receive my promises. Secondly, notice with me the reality of the resurrection evidenced by God's personal promises. The Lord spoke to Abraham's heart, said, look around, kid. Take a good long walk. Walk up there, walk down here, walk to this river, go over there. It's all yours. You and your descendants, even though you're barren and can't have kids, you and your descendants who come from your body will inherit this land. This will be your land. It will be called Israel. You will be here. You will be here with them. And from your body, I will bring the, the Messiah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will be in the family line of the King of kings and Lord of lords. They died not seeing any of that. And yet, God says, I made a promise. Therefore, they must live to receive the promise because God is not a liar. He brings his promises to pass. Abraham will stand in Israel with his saved Jewish descendants worshiping the Christ who came from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That day is coming. As Yeats put it, that one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves. That is destined. That day is done. It's a done deal. Abraham will stand on Israel's ground with his in Yiddish mishpuka with his family and all of those who've been adopted into the family. Us who believed in the same way Abraham believes because Paul the Apostle will say, hey, look, Gentiles, don't feel bad you're not physically related to Abraham. Don't see yourself as a second-class citizen. He says anyone who believes like Abraham believes is Abraham's true son because there are Jews who are related to Abraham, who do not believe, therefore they are not 
sons of Abraham in the true and living sense. But a Gentile who believes in the same way Abraham believes, simply trust, God said, I I want you to go down here. It's 1,200 miles from where you live, but uh, I've got this place for you called Israel. Just go. Abraham went, uh, okay. And he said, ah, righteous. Anyone who trusts me like that is my kid and will inherit the same promise that Abraham inherited. So we're at the end here. Has he made a promise to you? Jesus says this to you, and listen to me well. Let it sink into your ears. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. John chapter 11, verse 35. Well, how's that going to happen? I don't know. But he said, on your last day, I'm going to raise you up. Just like I raised myself up after three days in the grave. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that you won't be able to get into heaven with your physical body without having been changed. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all experience death, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised, never to die again, and we will be changed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Brings us perfectly to communion. Why is there a resurrection of salvation and life and glory? Because he took the sting for us. He let the viper strike him. He dies the death you deserve so that you can live the life he gives you. Without that, you'd be resurrected all right, but not to a real friendly face. Because we've all sinned and we've got to pay the penalty of that sin. It's either Christ paid for you or you pay your own way. And you and I both know lots of people who say, you know what? I'll pay my own way. Thank you. And he'll say on that day, he will resurrect them as well. That's another Bible study. The resurrection of the wicked and the damned, they are raised. But not to a friendly face. To a foe, not a father. This makes all the difference. This communion table. Let's pray. Father God, we know where we would be without the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of God's perfect lamb, Jesus, the Savior of the world. We would still be in our sins. But thankfully, Lord, you stood on our behalf, bore the flogging that should have been ours, endured the separation between you and the Father that we earned ourselves through our own sins. And then making payment, you cry out from the cross, it is finished. 
I have paid it in full for you. And then, appearing to 500 people after having been destroyed in death, raised to life. And in the same way, we too who follow you, though our bodies die, we will live because you live. Thank you, God. That wonderful, beautiful hope. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have open communion here. We're going to celebrate the fact that you can be raised up and walk where angels walk and become like them because of what Christ did for you. So as we maintain kind of a reverent environment because we're talking about the blood of Christ, let me let you know how it's going to go like it always goes. First, the bread will be passed out to you, symbolizing Christ's broken body on your behalf. Hold the bread until we're all served. Then I'll pray a prayer. I'll read a scripture. And we'll eat together. Same with the cup. Now, if you're not wishing to partake in communion, and all it is is saying, Lord, what you did on the cross is like a meal. I take it within my heart, just like this food goes inside me. Your cross, what you did on that cross is inside me. It's just a symbol. It's a metaphor. Powerful one. Now, if you don't wish to participate because you're not a Christian or you're just uncomfortable for any reason, simply decline being served. That's fine. So right now, here comes the cup. I asked Amanda to sing a special song. It just kind of grips my heart when I hear it. And I don't know if she's going to sing it or not, but uh, we're going <laughs> to... Oh, good. <laughs> and we're going to meditate on that and while you get the bread. All right, hold the bread, and then I'll come back. Father God, we want to just answer that question with nothing. We don't know anything about holiness. We don't know the first thing. But you are holy, God. We know without holiness, no man will see the Lord. We need that holiness. We need to be reminded to come out from the world and be separate, that you would receive us as sons and daughters. You say, touch no unclean thing. Keep yourself from being polluted from the world. And I will receive you. Father God, thank you that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't do this without your enablement. Help us to cooperate with you, Lord. Now reading from John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will live forever. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my body, which I give for the life of the world. Let's eat the bread together. And now the cup.
It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Either way, we all stand before him. He's made provision for us. If you are here, and you're unclear about your standing with Christ, as some of you are, don't let the sun go down today without getting right with your Savior. He loves you. To quote something I heard 31 years ago, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? It just doesn't seem logical. He's made a way for you. And it's as simple as calling on the name of the Lord. We're not going to lead you now, but you know, you cry out to God. You ask him to forgive your sins. Boom, done. Now, Father, we commit all of our lives, those who don't know you perhaps yet today and those who do. We pray that the truth of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection grip our hearts and lives. Your Holy Spirit, through this communion time, will have cleansed our souls and our consciences that we could sleep soundly and sweetly tonight. For you alone cause us to dwell in safety. Assure us of your great love today, and may we be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name. All God's people said a hearty amen. amen. Well, God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night or next Sunday. God bless you.